a Podcast One production. Hi, I'm Christopher Pine, and welcome to Pine Time. For years, I've been on the receiving end of a barrage of questions, some would say abuse, from the media and other politicians. But I've tried to keep it together, and hopefully I've had a successful career in politics. But now I'm out of the game, and I'm risking it all to step out of my comfort zone and embrace a new world of media, to turn the tables on my guests so you can hear for the first time stories that you've never heard before as they succumb to what some people are kindly describing as the pine effect. Our guest today on Pine Time is Dr Michael Fullylove. Michael is the Executive Director of the Lowy Institute, which is an important and successful think tank in Australia based here in Sydney, but on foreign affairs, defence affairs. I want to talk about think tanks in general and some of the policy implications around the, the future that Australia is facing. But firstly, I want to talk to, about, to Michael about his background, is where he started, and uh, primarily what got him interested in foreign policy and defence policy and how, he, how he's made that into a business that works because think tanks are hard to make pay and they come and go. And the Lowy Institute has been around for about 20 years now, mm-hmm. I would have thought. Nearly. Which is an achievement in itself. So, Michael, what's the, the, the short Michael Fully Love story growing up, going to uni at Oxford, becoming a Rhodes Scholar? How did you get to that point? Well, I, um, I came from a creative family. My dad was a film director. My really? mum my mom was a teacher. Actually, they met on the set of Skippy the Bush Kangaroo. <laughs> my dad was directed about half the episodes of Skippy and my mum was the onset tutor to Sonny. Do you remember Sonny? Sure do. So my brother and I are the sons of Skippy. Right. So that was that was kind of my milieu growing up. I was always interested in the world, always interested in politics and public life and American presidents and and things like that. I went to university, I studied arts law. I got involved in the Republican movement. I know you're a Republican as well. I, I am. Came, I came to Paul Keating's attention. He asked me to go down to work for him in Canberra for a couple of years, which I did. He lost the election in 96. I won a scholarship to Oxford and 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 then it continued. So you went to Oxford after you'd been working yep. in the government. Yeah. Because oh, often it's the other way around, mm-hmm. isn't it? And being a Rhodes Scholar would have been a very exciting and achievement for you. You would have been delighted to be part of that life. Yeah, it's it's kind of hard to have a normal job. It's hard to decompress after Oxford, let's put it that that way. It's so much fun. You, I met amazing friends, lifelong friends. I met my wife at Oxford, actually, at a, a speech by a visiting dignitary. The Secretary General of NATO was giving a speech at Oxford and I was sitting up in the gods. I saw this beautiful woman down there. I looked down at her and just as I looked at her, she gave me a big smile. Really? Which obviously doesn't happen often to people like me. And you like had me. a full head of hair then. I, I was very dashing and um, <laughs> I didn't meet her that night, but I met her subsequently and I introduced myself. And and I remember a few months into the courtship, we were at that point in the relationship where you say, you know, what did you think when we first met and so on? And I said, darling, when our eyes met at that speech, I was bowled away. Yes, you see, I believe in love at first sight too. And Gillian said, Gillian looked very confused when I said that. She said, were you at that speech? <laughs> That's terrible. See, she was smiling at someone else. A very good-looking, her suit gentleman behind me probably. 
Oh, no. But it, it worked out. It worked out. See, I met my, when I went out to dinner with my wife for my our first date, I thought at that moment, she finds this hard to believe too, actually, I thought this is the girl I'm going to marry. Just like that. Mm. And we've been together ever since. So I must <laughs> thank you. <laughs> same to you. Yes, well, not every, it's an achievement these days just being married still to the same to one person. Actually, a big achievement. And what did you do? And um, what did you study in your thesis in Rhodes at um, Oxford? Well, my thesis was when I first got onto the Franklin Roosevelt kick right. because I remember that the decision to do the thesis it was a kind it felt like an anti career move because all of my colleagues I was studying a master's degree in international relations and they were all serious stick insects and they were always, all wanted to be diplomats and policy wonks and so on. So they were all doing theses on chemical weapons or terrorists or yeah. nuclear weapons or whatever. And I thought, you know what, I've always admired Franklin Roosevelt. I'm at Oxford. Why don't I just take the opportunity to study someone that I admire and learn a lot about them? And and it went well. So they asked me to, to do a PhD and subsequently it became a book. And, you know, I've written kind of I mean, FDR's thinking and thinking about that period when America emerged into the world, when it was transformed mm. from a nervous isolationist middle power into, into the superpower, that has been much more helpful to my career than any number of serious policy theses. So I, I do often say to people when they ask for advice, you know, they say, I'm trying to triangulate it, I'm trying to do this or that and work out my career. I say, you know what, screw it. Do what you love. Do the thing that you enjoy the most and probably that will work out for the best. And that's part of becoming a Rhodes Scholar is that's one chance you're going to get in your life to do something entirely of your own choosing in an incredible setting which may or may not change the course of your next 30 or 40 or 50 years. Mm. And that's what they want you to do. They mm. actually want you to immerse yourself in something, mm. come out of it, a, you know, a better person, but mm. also with some piece, a body of work. Mm. It is an opportunity to to do something, to grow yeah. in a way that you wouldn't get if you just went straight from uni to law to you know, the courts or politics or whatever mm. you ended up doing. So FDR would have been a really interesting subject. It was amazing. And, um, F and the Rhodes Trust gave me a little travel budget to go to the Roosevelt Library in upstate New York, which right. I, re I recommend to, to all your listeners. You hop on a train in Manhattan when you're allowed to go into Manhattan. You get a train up and Roosevelt actually built a library in the grounds of his house, his family estate. Mm -hmm. The house is left is in- Is that Hyde Park? Hyde Park, yeah. exactly. Mm -hmm. the, ha the house is exactly as it was on the day he died. Is that right? And you get in and you, you know, I was there in my, in my mid to late 20s and I'm picking up the documents, the letters that FDR signed to Churchill. I'm I was finding documents that other people hadn't seen or at least- hadn't looked at in this in this way. Yeah, so it's it's a it's a great act of detective work. It's it's a great it's a wonderful act of imagination to try to put yourself into the shoes of someone. And of course, I was lucky that I had chosen someone who was not only a transformative figure. And remember, Roosevelt saved American democracy from the depression. He led the Allies to victory mm. in the Second World War. Mm. He won four consecutive presidential elections. He did it all with a broken body. Mm. So he did all that stuff. He was the sort of archetypal great figure. Totally. But he was also a seductive, effervescent man. And Churchill once said that meeting Roosevelt for the first time was like opening your first bottle of champagne. <laughs> and that made it much 
Intri- much more, in- and that's probably one of the reasons I I stayed on the Roosevelt train for a long time, and 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 have, and often returned to him because, on top of being a big figure, he was fundamentally a decent person, and he was fun. Mm. And I never know. I, I always wonder how do these historians who write multi-volume biographies on Stalin, <laughs> you know, how do you get up every morning, yeah. you know, living with Stalin, mm. breakfast, lunch, and dinner, mm. you know, living with Franklin is a lot more fun. People don't really talk too much about FDR. And when I was doing my um, valedictory speech, I quoted from FDR and I said that for many years I had kept in my bathroom in Parliament House a quote from FDR which said, the test of our progress Mm. is not whether we add more to the abundance of those that have much, but whether we provide enough to those who have little. Mm. I don't think I'm even paraphrasing. I think that was the quote. And the Labor people were stupefied that I would quote Franklin Delano Roosevelt. Mm. And the Liberals were stupefied as well because, you know, he was regarded as a, a Democrat, a lefty, but that's all so trite and silly. Mm. You know, he, what he was saying in that quote was people like him who were very privileged, successful, uh, rich, uber-rich New York family, they saw their role as the noblesse oblige, actually spreading their opportunity to those who were much less fortunate. Mm. So to me, he's always been a real um, a hero and someone to look up to, mm. even to the point where in my valedictory, knowing that it would stupefy both sides of the house for a liberal to quote FDR, I thought, well, that's the way I've always felt, you know, that he was an example for how people who've been given so much have a responsibility put back in. But it's it has been a bit lost in um, art political discourse these days. Mm. And those old noblesse obliges who used to be a big part of the Liberal Party in the Menzies-Fraser period, there's not very many of them there these days. It's a very different party. It's not the worst party. It's just a different party, if you like, after the Howard era where that wasn't regarded as being, you know, at the centrepiece of the Liberal Party's way of thinking. I I like the way you're going here because you're saying there should be more books about Roosevelt, and I, <laughs> yes. I agree with that. But I, I'm not sure. You're right. He goes in and out of fashion, but every year he comes up, you know, more often than you think. And I think we're going into a period where we're going to think about Roosevelt more because Joe Biden will take over the presidency at a at a period of crisis, really. And there are, you know, there haven't been that many periods of of crisis that are quite so acute as as what he's take as the circumstance that he's inherited. And so I think people will look back for historical parallels. They'll look to Biden's first 100 days. They'll be looking for some of the energy that uh, Roosevelt brought to the first 100 days. They'll be looking for some of the ambition that Roosevelt had throughout his presidency because yes, he he was noblesse oblige was was part of Roosevelt, but he was he was also seeking to transform American society. I mean, he he brought the state back into into American life in a way that it hadn't been beforehand, and it it took some decades for the state to retreat again afterwards. And as you know, uh, there's all the energy in the Democratic Party in the United States at the moment is on the, is on the left. It's on, People saying that the government needs to do more, not not do less. So, uh, I'm thinking that there might be an angle for 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 some op eds to be written by analysts who know something about FDR. You're obviously a very intellectual person, an academically gifted person. Worked for Paul Keating, mm-hmm. went to Oxford, 
have been interested in public policy, defence and foreign affairs. We've touched a little on that already. But tell me, how does a think tank, Mm. how does it come into being, stay interesting for a long period of time and pay for itself? Because you're not selling a widget, you know, you're selling interests, interests in ideas Mm. and how does that make a profit? So I think people would be interested to know how the Lowy Institute, why why was there a need for Mm. an institute and how is it different to what was already on offer? Well, when we established the institute, there wasn't really much of a think tank scene in Australia. And Frank Lowy wanted to give a gift to Australia to mark the 50th anniversary of his arrival in Australia. Right. And I had just come back from Oxford and I was kind of looking around. I was interested in starting a, a think tank too. And and we had, and I, I came into Mr. Lowy's orbit and we had a, a meeting that for me and for the Institute w- was, was one for the ages. And I pitched an idea to Mr. Lowy and he said, well, I've been thinking about doing something like that, but I don't want to do that. I might like to do something bigger. Right. <laughs> which is not something you often hear. So he asked me to write a feasibility study. And his, he, what he said to me was that when he travels around Australia, and you know, he's a, a very proud Australian, and he said, I, would, I look in the newspaper for references to Australia, and the only references I see are to shark attacks and tennis players. Yeah. And I want Australia to be known for its ideas and for the role it plays in the world. Great. So he asked me, he tasked me with, with coming up with a blueprint, which, which I did. He proceeded with that, and he hired Alan Gingell as the first director. And we're off to the races. So that's that. That was how we started. The missions that Frank gave us were to deepen the debate in Australia, to contribute to the public, the policy debate in Australia, but also importantly, to project Australian voices abroad. And that's something that I'm very big on, that I'm always saying to my colleagues, it's great to publish in the Sydney Morning Herald, but I want to see you in the New York Times as well. I want to see you in foreign affairs. I don't, I want you on the ABC, but I also want you on the BBC. You know, mm-hmm. be ambitious, try to try to influence global events and global issues. There's no reason why you can't. We have the great gift of, of the English language and with digital technology and all that sort of stuff, a single note can pierce the bubble. You can be heard. You can write for an international audience if, if you have the chutzpah and the ability to do it. So, so that's how we've started. I would say ambition has been a big part of the Lowy Institute's story. In terms of um, how we fund the Institute, the the Lowy family continues to be a very generous donor to the Institute. And we couldn't, we definitely couldn't do it without the Institute, without the family, I should say. But what we've done, especially over the last few years, is diversify the sources of of revenue. So we have corporate and government members. uh, A lot of the big end of town are our supporters companies and and will often sponsor particular events. We take government grants uh, from time to time. We take grants from big philanthropic organisations. So we have a very diverse um, series of sources, starting with the Lowy family, but extending beyond that. But this is a change in Australia too, in the last two decades, in that a company, a board Mm. in Australia in the 50s and 60s, Mm. if someone had turned up and said, I'd like, you know, X amount Mm. of dollars for my think tank, Mm. apart from a few examples, like BHP would be one, they would have thought, well, how is that going to help my bottom line? Mm. What's great in the last couple of decades in Australia is this attitude is starting to penetrate Mm. into boardrooms in the nation's capitals and the philanthropic foundations and families who think 
if there is something of value being offered, then we will actually support something that doesn't change our bottom line. Mm. Because one, we can afford to. Two, it's a it's a responsibility that we should take seriously. And but most importantly, the institute or the think tank has to actually offer something of value. What I find interesting about Lowy is it's not a it's not an urger. Mm. It's an an analyst mm. and an opinion writer, sure, but it's not an urger. Whereas mm. I think some of them are getting into this unfortunate zone mm. where they're taking sides. Mm. And I think a think tank that takes a side, uh, other than a side for you know values and good policy, but if mm. they say this this group think this kind of thinking is what we support and we don't support that kind of thinking, mm. I don't think that's a think tank. Mm. I think that has become a barrica, mm. and that hasn't been the hap- happened to the Lowy Institute. Mm. So how do you avoid that kind of group think in your institute? Well, partly it's always been in our DNA in the sense that. When we were established, we one of our founding principles was that scholars write in their own names and there are no house positions on anything. And having that principle and upholding it and sticking to it is the most is the most important way of avoiding groupthink because, I mean, for example, I will sometimes pick up a newspaper and I will see two Lowy Institute people quoted disagreeing with each other in an article. And I love that. Mm-hmm. Because our, our intention is not to move Australia towards China or away from China, closer to the United States, further away from the United States, certainly not to the left or the right. It's to deepen the debate and make it a much richer and more interesting debate. That's our job. We're not trying to move the needle to the left and the right. And I think over the, over the long term, sometimes, as you say, urges and barrackers can have sort of more short-term bang, but over mm. the long term... This is a much better guarantor of your independence um, and your authority because people know that we're not running a line. Our scholars, based on years of experience and learning, are, are telling the truth about, about how they see the world. Yeah. And I think people value that. I think they do. And it's sort of, I think it's a bad thing when a think tank's in the newspaper and someone's describing the think tank as being a, quote, well-known opponent of China or a well-known you know, exponent of peace in the Middle East, you think mm. they shouldn't be taking a particular side. Now they're known as an opponent of China. Well, that doesn't in- increase the level of knowledge. They're now going to, if they keep swimming to that lane as well, it's not going to make mm. it better. Mm. And then if they're suddenly not seen as opponents of, say, China, then have they changed their opinion? I mean, that's where think tanks are starting to get into a lot of mess. Mm. You've really got to be very balanced mm. as a think tank, mm. uh, as an institute, and I think the Lowy Institute's achieved that. One of the things that Lowy's done, which I'm particularly interested in and I've used a lot mm. in my speeches over the years, is the Lowy Power Index. Mm. Where did that come from? And explain that a bit to the listeners. Well, it's part of a big digital push that we've had in the last few years. So I think this is one area where we've been ahead of the game. We, we started many years ago, we started a digital magazine called The Interpreter. Of course, you, you're familiar with the Lowy Institute poll being a former politicians. Politicians always love polls. But in, the, in, in recent years, we've moved heavily into this sort of digital uh, research where you, you use digital visualisation tools to, to tell a story. So we have the Pacific Aid Map, which tracks all the financial flows from around the world to the Pacific, which mm-hmm. is amazing. And we have the Asia Power Index. So 
A few years ago, we we just felt that wealth and power were moving towards our part of the world, towards Asia. Mm-hmm. And people often made assertions about who had power and who was gaining in power, but there wasn't a sort of gold standard to try to really assess it in some sort of objective way. And we were very lucky to hire a, a young researcher called Hervé Lemahieu, who, who I know has briefed briefed you when you were defence minister, mm-hmm. um, who, and Hervé with the rest of the team came up with a model for measuring power along different axes and based on hundreds and hundreds of data points. And so it enables you to, first of all, to assess who's got more power between America and China or Japan and India, but also to dig into the data and find out in what ways are they powerful? Is it is it resilience or is it economic capability or military capability Diplomacy. or di- dipl- diplomatic skill? You know, there's a lot of, we do a lot of opinionating like everybody in the think tank industry, you know, 800 words on this or that. But what I like about these kinds of projects is they're objective, they're data-based, they're done over a long period of time. So you can track changes in power or changes in public opinion. Which is happening. Absolutely. And they're resources that anyone can go to with any opinion and draw on those resources and see whether it, it backs up their argument or not. So to go back to the earlier point about not having a position, but rather being a sort of a public resource that that thickens the intellectual topsoil, if you like, I'm, I'm very proud of what the team have done with the Power Index. Yeah, in many ways, it shines a light into the deep pit of ignorance amongst Australians about where they are in the world. I mean, everyone's got an opinion about Indonesia or uh, China or Japan and Australia, but not much of it's well-informed. Mm. Every year, between seven and eight out of 10 Australians would say that the US alliance is important to our security. Mm. And they sort of separated the person for, of the president from the institution of the alliance. And they, they understand in a very deep-seated way that mm. this is a big part of our international personality it's a big part of our international security. Yeah, because they're quite sophisticated Australians about what's actually important and they can also break up the difference between state, territory and Commonwealth elections despite what people say. <laughs> and similarly, I think they look at America and think that's all show business, but the real business, mm. which is, you know, is it important for America to be the most powerful country in the world kind of, and they are ally, so therefore the answer is yes. I mean, I found myself instinctively writing positive things about the Trump administration four years ago because I wanted him to succeed. And I thought it's Mm. very important that he succeeds and it's really important that Australians don't lose their faith in the United States. And it was only this year in about sort of June, April, May, June, July that I started thinking, well, now I'm free to actually (laughs) write what I really think about this election because um, we obviously can't have continuation of this horror mm. in the White House. But when I wrote my last column about Trump for the Tizer, the advertiser, about a month before the election, it, it went absolutely crazy on social media because mm. people were aghast that I would take a view against Trump. It sort of shocked me that there were, I had emails and comments from Canada, the United States, all mm. around the world telling me how dreadful I was and I was going to egg all over my face. Mm. and You would have loved that, though. I didn't care less. Yeah. I did love it. But it proved that these Trump people, the, the people who support Trump, really aggressively support him, right? Mm. But I think he's letting go now. 
Yeah, I think I think he's looking forward to the future. How does he monetize the situation he's in? Does he <laughs> does he run again in twenty twenty four? You know, do you think he will? I think he'll do whatever he judges uh, that is the best way to to stay on the front pages of the newspapers. I mean, he he loves being the center of attention, and it is amazing. I mean, as a political professional, you would have to doff your lid to him. I mean, the extent to which he has dominated world news for the last four years is unbelievable. Well, if you're prepared to say really shocking things, you will dominate news. It doesn't... <laughs> and, yeah. And, he got a little, and he's also President of the United he States of America. President of the United States. But, you know, it, it takes a certain grim genius to take over the grand old party, the Republican Party of totally. alliances and family values, mm. and to take it over and to destroy various storied dynasties like the Bushes and mm. leave them in your path. Mm. And then the Clintons, so he, he is he is a, he is a he's one out of the box politically, no but, doubt. But he is just, you know, there's something about the awfulness of him that was very challenging for an America file like me. You know, spent so much of my life traveling to the United States, studying the United States, reading archives in the United States, looking back to this period mm. when America emerged into the war into the world to see. Someone like Mr. Trump trying to drag it back, mm. drag it back into the cave. So how, Michael, how did the states, the United States, go from FDR to Donald Trump? Well, I think that, you know, there's, there's two sides to any country, right? And America's always had a tawdry side to it, a side, you know, whether it's mob lawyers or, or porn stars or whatever, whatever it is. And, and Donald Trump, brought that kind of American bunga bunga down with him, down the golden, <laughs> down the golden escalator when he, when he, when he declared. And, and he said, you know, I mean, th- th- these are not original comments, but he said to, he said to the so-called untouchables that, you know, as Hillary described them, no, I, I don't care. You know, I see you and I'm one of you. And these people think they're so smart, but uh, I'm here for you. And you can recognise yourself in me. I've got more money, but mm. but basically we're the same. But in the end, uh, America was too good for him, and America kind of expelled him Thank in the goodness. end. So an America file like me can, I think, breathe a sigh of relief. You know, th- this is this is an interesting question now. What happens to the Republican Party? I was about to ask you that very question. Yeah. So, can the GOP get its soul back? Can they? Can the establishment get control of the got back or is it all over Red Rover? Is Trump and his family going to dominate for four years? And will they even try? Well, I hope it does because America needs a conservative movement Mm. and the Biden administration needs a respectable opposition. Every coin has two sides. Absolutely. So it's it's in America's interest that the conservative uh, movement and the Republican Party regain its mojo You'd have to say that that there's not that many reasons to be optimistic about it, though, because no. because as you as you rem- remember, uh, weeks after the election, when it was completely plain that President Trump had lost the election, even after hand counts in Georgia and so on, it's absolutely clear. Very few elected Republicans were prepared to say that. Mitt Romney did. Mitt Romney really emerges from this period as as a very admirable. Character. So in fact, can, can the Republicans coalesce around Mitt Romney? Yeah, well, let's see. Well, Or is, is he past his um, best days? I mean, we wouldn't want to say that with Joe Biden becoming president. He's yeah. 78 
<laughs> Sorry. No one's ever passed that. Maybe I should have stayed in politics, Michael. I'm only 53. <laughs> I gave myself. Never, it's never too late. I didn't never give myself late, enough runway. Never I didn't t- give myself enough runway. Uh, I think you squeezed a lot of juice out of the lemon. I think you, I think you did fine. <laughs> Look, let's see. As you say, the, the, the question of what the Trumps do is relevant here because he... He he still has enormous sway, so let's let's see what happens to him. But look, ultimately, it's down to the Republicans. They need to find their spine again and say, no, we are not a sub-brand of the Trump organisation. Mm. We are a very proud political party. We, just, we're the yeah. party of Lincoln. We're the party of Eisenhower Reagan. and Reagan, uh, and we want to return to those roots. And if they do, then um, then I think that would be good for America. But they'll need the numbers, and that's the the iron law of politics mm-hmm. at the end of the day, mm-hmm. looking at the people going to Republican conventions and sort of mm. shouting for Trump, I uh, it makes me very nervous that those people aren't there anymore. But mm. we'll hopefully they will find their voice. Now, turning to, you know, foreign policy in the Indo-Pacific, mm. it's obviously Australia's number one priority, the US alliance and how it fits into the Indo-Pacific. Mm. What's your sense of where the Biden administration will take American policy vis-a-vis China, Japan, South Korea, Taiwan, Singapore, and how will that impact on us here? Mm. Well, I think, first of all, Biden's election gives the United States a fighting chance because it's more likely, I mean, he's not going to be perfect, but it's more likely that under Biden, the United States is going to be well-governed and cohesive and somewhat united and not and, you know, somewhat appealing to the world. So that's the first thing. Yeah, that's the first thing. But we don't know what kind of foreign policy Biden is going to run because in running against Trump, he just really defined himself against Trump. He Mm -hmm. said, I actually believe in alliances, whereas Trump doesn't, and I believe in climate change, whereas Trump doesn't. What we don't know yet is what will be the organising principle of the Biden administration. Mm. Will they be trying to? Will it? Will will it be one of great power competition with China? Will it be a pivot, a repivot back to Asia? Will it be restoring the liberal international order with maybe more of a focus on Europe? A lot of this come. We know that Biden will be different from Trump, but will Biden be different from Obama? Mm. And this is where the personalities matter. I think personalities will matter much more in the Biden administration than the Trump administration. Under Trump. All power sprung from the head of the great, the great one, right? He was the decider. But Biden's a different character. And so, you know, when you look at the constellation, we've started to see some of, some of the names, but that will help determine, for example, whether Biden puts more of an emphasis on competing with China and takes an, an alliance-first approach of making sure the alliance, the allies feel strong and secure before he reaches out to China. Or, on the other hand, if he says, well, I want mine to be an historic presidency. I want to move the world forward on climate, for example, and I need China to do that. So we don't know is the answer. Yes, it'll be more orthodox than than Trump. Yes, he believes in a, a leadership role for America. Yes, he believes in alliances and institutions, but we don't know yet what, what exactly will be his organising principle. I'd be interested in your thoughts about my theory on China and Australia and the Western world, mm-hmm. because when I was the minister in the defence portfolio, uh, I gave a number of speeches which would have been described as hawkish about Australia's uh, view towards um, China, the Indo-Pacific, the United States Alliance, Japan. But 
No, I, I often used to say I think the Western world imagines China for what they would like it to be and doesn't actually see China for what it is. And there's a lot of people in the commentariat in Australia and the Western world who who are surprised that China wants to be or sees itself as a world power, as though this is a new thing, as though they've turned up to the party and now kind of want to run the show, as opposed to the historic China, which is a 2,000-year world power with about 100 and plus years, 150 years of being what they regard as humiliated by the West mm. and that what the West needs to do if they're going to be able to manage their relationships with China is see China as opposed to imagining it for what it is. And until that happens, we're going to keep having this uh, a lot of difficulties with China. I'm not suggesting that we, that means we need to acquiesce to China's views of itself in the world. But start from the starting point of not really expecting or accepting that they should be a world power, I just don't think they're going to get. We're going to get off first base. They well, they are a they are a superpower, and superpowers have certain prerogatives. The difficulty is when um, the superpower is run by a Leninist political party that's prepared to do sort of unspeakable things to its minorities and and is very aggressive. Those prerogatives are are tough to swallow. And I suppose in Australia's case, it's also that that China is doing things, as you know better than I, that that we feel encroach on our sovereignty. And by the way, the Chinese embassy putting out a Xi Jinping's 14 points <laughs> is, is not the not not the best way for them to to change that opinion. So look, this is the balance, this is the balancing act for us. We we don't want a region dominated by China. That's very that's not congenial to our interests. We want a balance of forces in Asia, including the long-term presence of the United States to bring mm. some balance to the region. On the other hand, China's not going anywhere. They are our most important economic partner. We are not going to give away our sovereignty or our dignity. But at the same time, we also need to have, we at some point, we need to get the relationship back on a more positive trajectory. And that's that's in our interest. That's in China's interest too, because we are a reliable supplier of the resources they need to power their economy. And also because everyone is watching them. Everyone is watching how they treat Australia. So this is the very difficult balancing act for your successes in government. How do you, as you say, live up to your values and not not take a step backward in terms of your sovereignty and your interests, but at the same time, accept that China is what it is. It's not going to change anytime soon. And we need to have a, a positive working relationship with China. I think China was doing better in increasing its leverage and power 10 years ago before it decided to mm. start worrying its neighbours. Mm. And the conversations that I had with people across ASEAN mm. before I was in the defence portfolio, in other portfolios, when they didn't feel that China was flexing its muscles, was were quite different mm. to the ones that we have today because mm. those countries sort of said, well, you, know, you shouldn't be so worried about China. Mm. But because China, I think, overstepped the mark in the last few years under President Xi in particular, mm. there's a sense that the ASEAN nations are now saying, actually, we do need to sort of take this very seriously. And what Australia says and Japan and the United States, we are not going to be able just to hope that it all works out okay. This mm. South China Sea thing was just part of that. But things like plans for military bases in Cambodia and so forth are 
terrifying for the the mm. local region. The work they've done in Sri Lanka, Pakistan, Djibouti. I mean, all of these expansions of Chinese power, they are worrying their neighbours and therefore uniting their neighbours in a way that they weren't doing 10 years ago. I think they were making more progress. Mm. I agree with that. I also think that Xi Jinping has wasted an historic opportunity with Donald Trump. I mean, the CCP probably only gets one Donald Trump in its lifetime, you know. Um, <laughs> like Alan Bond exactly. and Gary Packer. <laughs> yeah, I mean, how often do you get a leader of the free world who doesn't believe in the free world and doesn't want to lead it? I mean, they should have been they should have been making hay and they went in the opposite direction. So, I mean, part of me agrees that, yes, this has been a bad period for the Chinese and and they and they will correct they will self correct the other part of me knows that it's always dangerous to tell another country or another person what its interests are and the chinese are probably sitting there thinking well you may say that christopher pine michael fully love but here we are we're first out first out of the blocks after covid our economy is going gangbusters sure all these countries talk tough they don't like it but we're going to continue with it and as long as we can continue to to separate them and and prevent them from uniting by with carrots and sticks, then ultimately we'll create the facts on the water. What do you think their end game is in relation to Australia? Well, as you know, I mean, I, many many times over the last twenty years, I've been, you know, I've been on the receiving end of very helpful lectures from Chinese officials about <laughs> about how the alliance is a Cold War relic and why we're being unfriendly and so on. I think I think. We know well. Their end game, I suppose, is expressed in the fourteen points that the Chinese embassy uh, leaked to the media. I mean, they would like us to stop saying things that are unfriendly to them. They would like us to to move away from the United States, encourage the United States to step back, and and move away from many of the sort of historical elements of Australia as a country and a society and a foreign policy player. And obviously, we're not going to do that. And when that doesn't happen, well, does it all just go away like a mist? No, no, that's not the metaphor. I think the metaphor I would I would choose is that it's not like a mist and neither is it like a great meeting from the 19th century where Australia and China comes together and decide here's the roadmap for the future. It's more like, you know, two big animals that are bumping up against each other and at the same time being aware of their environment and, you know, not allowing them, themselves to go under the feet of the other animal, but at the same time realising that that's how relationships are developed in the friction, actually. They, China is always testing us. China understands, China respects strength. They don't respect weakness because they remember when they were weak. They, they despise weakness. So we've got to be strong and we have to double down on our history and our values. But at the same time, we need to leave open that crack of light and we need to be looking for opportunities to do some positive things with China too. Because as I say, in the end, they're not going anywhere. We're going, we're not going anywhere. And we don't want to be at daggers drawn forever. Is that a platform for a political career, Michael? No, absolutely not. No, no, <laughs> no. I've got my dream job here. You have no interest in politics? No. I mean, I feel at the Lowy Institute, there's an opportunity to be creative. It's a lovely environment where your colleagues wish you well. <laughs> you can, you know. We... That's, but that's how I found... Capitol Hill every day. <laughs> I'm very happy at Bly Street. Well, you're doing a great job. Thank you very much for joining us on Pine Time today. And uh, I look forward to more value adding from the Lowy Institute. Thank you for having me. Pleasure. 
Pine Time was presented by me, Christopher Pine. Audio production by Darcy Thompson, produced by Matt Dwyer and the ever-patient executive producer, Jennifer Goggin. Thank you.